You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this may be the most jam-packed, information-filled podcast that you're going to listen to all week. And when you're done listening, if you agree with that description, do me a favor and share this episode of Labor Relations Radio with your colleagues. And by the way, I don't have a guest today because, quite frankly, there's been so much news over the last five days that it was too difficult to line someone up on such short notice. And FYI, if you're not visiting LaborUnionNews.com regularly or not subscribed to LaborUnionNews.com's News Digest on Substack, you're probably not seeing a lot of it. However, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to place some six degrees of separation or connect the dots with you and touch on a few of the big news stories before I get to the really big one, which is the topic of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. So the first news story, or dot, if you will, comes out of Washington State, and that is the more than four months long concrete strike by the Teamsters that's caused 15,000 construction workers around Seattle to be laid off is now over. To be clear, the Teamsters still don't have a contract, but what they're doing is they're throwing in the towel on the strike, and they've made an unconditional offer to return to work. Now, according to the Seattle Times, quote, Teamsters Local 174 said Friday afternoon that all of the more than 300 striking drivers who work for six local companies have offered an unconditional return to work starting on Monday. The union had previously sent a portion of its drivers back to work. Quote, this won't stop the negotiations. It will just stop people thinking we're to blame and we're the bad guys, end quote, said uh, Brett Gallagher, a mixer driver and member of the union bargaining committee. Quote, we have a lot of mud to get done and a lot of people to get back to work, end quote. Now, the interesting thing about the Teamsters ending a strike that's crippled the construction industry out around Seattle for months is that it came only a couple of weeks after Sean O'Brien, who's the new Teamster president, gave a million dollars from the Teamster Strike Fund to help support the strikers. But, quote, it's evident we're not gaining ground fast enough. We decided to do this for the communities, for all the trades, ourselves included. We need to get the entire region back to work. It's time to change tactics and try something else, end quote. That was Gallagher telling KIRO News Radio. Well, so now they're going to try something different. That's good to know. It's curious, though, since a union's biggest weapon is their ability to go out on strike. And in the Teamsters case in Seattle, they shot and missed. I'm wondering what other tactics they can try. Now, in addition to that, the Teamsters may have thrown in the towel because according to news reports, King County officials, which is the Seattle area, were considering cities and municipalities producing their own concrete. And that would have definitely put a damper on the strikers' ability to get a decent contract. So whatever the case, at least Seattle's construction will start moving again. So that's a good thing, right? Now, we're going to use the Teamsters' Sean O'Brien as the first dot 
to connect our second and very loosely related, related big story second dot. And this one's on the East Coast. So last week, after Amazon labor union's David versus Goliath victory in Staten Island a couple weeks ago, ALU President Chris Smalls and Vice President Derek Palmer traveled to Washington, D.C. In fact, Smalls proudly posted a picture of himself on Twitter in a satin jacket that had the words, quote, eat the rich on it. While they were there, Smalls and Palmer met with a few Democratic Party politicians who previously, according to Smalls, had essentially ignored the ALU. That's the Amazon Labor Union. Then... Smalls and Palmer w- met with um, Sarah Nelson, who's from the Flight Attendants Union, and also Teamsters Sean O'Brien. And again, he's only Sean O'Brien's only been Teamster president for about a month now, three weeks. So, as some labor watchers know, last year the Teamsters made really big news at its convention by passing a resolution to unionize all of Amazon, and the Teamsters had already invested some time and money and and coming up with some sort of strategy that frankly no one really knows but along comes Chris Smalls and his comrades and they sort of cleans they cleaned everyone's clock meaning the establishment unions like the Teamsters and the RWDSU and UFCW etc they they really just kind of blew apart the established union model in terms of organizing so after more than a year of being largely ignored by Democrat politicians and establishment unions, Smalls goes down to D.C. and he's greeted like a celebrity. Now, after the meeting with O'Brien, the Teamsters PR people, and this is where it kind of gets interesting, the Teamsters PR people shared a picture of O'Brien and Smalls shaking hands inside the Teamsters headquarters, and they shared it on social media, which apparently led to some speculation that there could be some sort of affiliation between the ALU and the Teamsters. Again, the Teamsters announced last year they were going to unionize all of Amazon. So on Friday, after Smalls got back from D.C., Chris Smalls felt the need to address the rumor at a pre-planned rally outside Amazon's uh, Staten Island facility. So here's Smalls at the rally via Twitter. That's what we went down there Went down there for we uh we met up with uh Sarah Nelson, shout out to Sarah Nelson. She will be coming to Staten Island. I'm putting her on Front Street too, but she already confirmed. Uh, Sean O'Brien from the Teamsters, the president. I met him for the first time. Great guy. We had a great conversation. He's gonna be throwing resources at our uh, uh, at them at least because he wants to fight with us. And we're not affiliated. Get that out of the way now. We are still independent. I know there's a lot of. You know, when I shook his hand, the pictures on Twitter and all of that, I want people to know we are independent. We're going to remain independent. The establishment, the established unions, that's right. We want this the way we did it. And we're not going to get that up. No way. Um, And I think they know that. You know, we they have to go through us and it should be that way. So they're going to support us. The Teamsters are going to support us. The, The big unions are going to support us. And that's all we're asking for resources, office space, money, whatever it takes, manpower, strike funds, whatever it takes, lawyers, uh, negotiators, we got it now. The Calvary is, is, has come, and it's still coming. So Amazon, be prepared, because we're coming. I know y'all heard Biden said that, but he should have said the ALU is coming for Amazon. That's what he should have said. Because we are. 
So again, that was last Friday. And if you're a Labor Union News subscriber, you probably got uh, posts on Saturday morning about that. In any case, that's the current plans. That is for the Amazon Labor Union to stay independent for now. Um, However, it seems as though, and this is just my personal opinion, and I could be wrong, but right now, despite all the help they're getting, they seem to be just sort of winging it. Here's a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Let's go back about a week and a half ago to right after the ALU's win. Chris Smalls went on to CNN with Casey Hunt, and when she asked him what they were seeking out of a contract, Smalls answered with this. Negotiations with Amazon, when you start talking about what this contract is actually going to look like, what do you? What are your top two or three demands for them? What do you need from them to actually make these differences? Number one is job security. Um, you know, uh, Amazon, especially here in Staten Island, they have a turnover rate of 150 percent. So for every 10 people they hire, they fire 15 of them. Um, we've seen it throughout the course of the campaign. In six months, they fired nearly a thousand workers. Um, you know, that's job security. Uh, number two is uh, working conditions. Workers uh, get injured at a rapid race, a high, a high rate at Amazon. Um, we want shorter work days. We want longer breaks. Um, we want to be accommodated when there's medical uh, issues or uh, if somebody needs to be accommodated, they need to be accommodated at the, the job site as well. And we want to make everybody shareholders again. Amazon stopped that back in 2018. When I got hired in 2015, I was a shareholder on entry level. Um, they took that away and raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But our, our, us veterans, uh, we lost thousands of dollars because of that. We need to bring that back. And we want a pension. We want to go to college for free. Um, we want, once again, I'm going to mention this a million times, we want job security because Amazon hires and fire all the time. So Small says they want their Amazon shares of stock back. Let that sink in for a moment as I read you this tweet from Communist Party USA on March 31st. Quote, the New York District of the Communist Party USA and Young Communist League have played a major role in Amazon Labor Union drive efforts. We are hoping for their victory over the monopolistic or monopolist giant, which will be a major advance for the working class in the United States. End quote. Now, At some point, I'm going to devote a whole episode to the history of unions and socialism and communism because the nexus is so so out in the open these days um, that it's surprising no one in the echo chamber media is picking this up. However, as it relates to Amazon and Chris Smalls, it seems a bit strange for a union that had so much help from the Communist Party to want something so capitalist in nature, such as shares of stock, that I wonder if Smalls checked with his comrades before making that statement. Then back to his interview on CNN, when Casey Hunt asked how Smalls wanted people in the country or how they should feel about buying things from Amazon, Here's how he responded. Um, how should people out in the country feel about buying things from Amazon? I mean, should people feel guilty doing that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get on my family about it, too. They still, they still do it. But um, you know what? Um, we want workers and we want the public to know that it's a, it's a hand-in-hand relationship. We come from the community that Amazon sets up their shop in. Um, and, and until this company do better by us, uh, you definitely shouldn't support them 
in that aspect, you should stand in solidarity with your workers, with your family. Your family members are friends who ever work at Amazon because they come from your community. And um, Amazon, you know, exploits our community. They use and abuse us and like they did with me. You know, I was working for them for nearly five years. And then when they felt that I, you know, stood up for workers' rights or organized, which all I was trying to do is do the right thing for my fellow coworkers and protect them, um, they terminated me. So um, after that, you know, once again, I, I felt that enough is enough. Um, there's certain things systemically that Amazon can definitely do better. So stand in solidarity with the workers. Now, wait a minute. I don't know about you, but that sure sounded like he was calling for a consumer boycott of Amazon, didn't it? So in less than two minutes, the president of the Amazon Labor Union, who was given assistance in his campaign by the Democratic Socialists of America, the Communist Party USA, and New York's Young Communist League, whose chair, his co-chair was one of the union salts planted into Amazon, by the way, stating that he wants the company's stocks to be negotiated into a contract, while at the same time asking for the public not to use Amazon. So obviously that's been ignored by the echo chamber media and will probably continue to be ignored by the vast majority of Amazon's customers. However, can you imagine if it wasn't ignored? Could you imagine if the vast majority of Amazon's customers took Small's advice and started boycotting Amazon? How would Amazon workers feel if the union they were supporting caused the customers that supply them with jobs suddenly stopped using their employer and their employer started issuing layoff notices? This is why, in my opinion, I tend to think that the ALU is just winging it. So by Friday's rally, Chris Smalls was back on his eat the, risk, eat the rich message, and he led his supporters in a kind of colorful, if you will, anti-Jeff Bezos chant. Billionaires, they gotta go. Billionaires, they gotta go. Now, I don't know about you, but that may play well with younger workers who want a hip union to join. And yes, that is probably protected speech. However, I'm not sure how well that's going to play with the company's negotiators sitting across a bargaining table, especially since the union only won the election with about 31% of the eligible 8,000 employees voting to unionize, right? So that is really if they ever get to the bargaining table at all. And that gets us to our fourth related big story. On Friday, as many people know, Amazon filed about 25 objections to the election in Staten Island. Now, with 25 objections, that would be a lot to go through on this episode of Labor Relations Radio. However, if you want to read them in their entirety, we have them on laborunionnews.com, and I'll put them under the audio portion of this episode. But let me just state, if you read through them, you might agree with me that some of the objections might be problematic for both the NLRB and the ALU in certifying the election, as a number of them involve the NLRB's alleged misconduct. 
So, and again, I'm saying alleged, don't know how it's going to be ruled upon eventually. However, two of the objections I found to be kind of noteworthy, uh, not because of the allegation, but because of the ALU's press release in response. So here's the um, objection number 13. Quote, during the critical period and while the polls were open, the ALU's members and agents harassed and threatened physical violence and other reprisals against employees who are not supportive of the ALU's cause, end quote. And, objection 22, the, quote, the ALU distributed marijuana to employees in return for their supporting the election. Amazon made the region aware of such conduct several times, end quote. Now, again, these are a small part of a total of 25 objections, and many of them were against the NLRB itself, which means this may ultimately end up in the D.C. Circuit Court. However, what piqued my interest was the press release the ALU issued on Saturday to refute the objections. In one of the refuting statements, and is presumably about the threats, or the alleged threats, the ALU states that Amazon, quote, made false claims that ALU members coerced their coworkers despite the fact that ALU members are Amazon workers with no coercive authority, end quote. Now, that's a really interesting statement from the ALU, which may, in fact, be completely inaccurate depending on who said what. You see, if Amazon Labor Union is truly a union, then its officers could be considered agents of the union, and that's according to case law. And if someone who's an agent of the union coerces employees, that has far greater impact than if a mere co-worker did it. So this opens up a bigger topic. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Is the Amazon Labor Union an actual legitimate union? Now, Amazon devoted a whole objection to this issue, Objection 21, and it could be a pretty big deal, not so much for the objections, but for the ALU itself, as well as its supportive unions. The ALU claims to be a union. It has a website. It has officers. They are raising a crap ton of money. In fact, as of today, before I recorded this episode of Labor Relations Radio, the ALU has raised nearly $225,000 on GoFundMe. And you heard Chris Small say at their rally on Friday, the establishment unions are going to be giving them more money and office space and whatever they need, which also begs the question, how much has already been given by other unions or the Communist Party or DSA? What about all the free legal help from the OPEIU's attorney, Seth Goldstein? Is the OPIU paying his salary while he's helping the ALU? If so, would that not be a donation from the OPIU? Here's another question. You ready for this? Who bought the pot that was allegedly given to the Amazon workers as a bribe? Did the ALU keep receipts for that pot? Good question, right? Now, If you do a search for Amazon Labor Union on the Department of Labor's website, as I did over the weekend, you'll probably get the same information I did, which states, quote, no records found. Again, this is where it gets problematic. All unions are supposed to file financial records and their union constitutions with the Department of Labor's Office of Labor Management Standards. And Amazon noted this in a couple of their objections, but Objection 21, as I said, is entirely devoted to it. Now, 
I'm not sure if they just missed that part of federal law that applies to unions. And by the way, it's called the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act of 1959. So it's been around a long time. But again, quote, no records found. Here's what the Department of Labor says on its website. Quote, labor organizations must file the form LM1 within 90 days of the date in which they become subject to the LMRDA. Additionally, they must file the annual financial disclosure reports, forms LM2, LM3, and LM4 within 90 days of the end of their fiscal year, end quote. Now, it's possible that the ALU has filed an LM1 form and they haven't filed their LM2 or LM3 financials yet because it hasn't been a full year of being a formal union yet. That's possible. Nevertheless, hopefully these kids, if I may be so bold, are keeping accurate records of their receipts and expenditures because if not, there may be no one left to go to the bargaining table if they ever do get a certified election because sometimes violating the LMRDA lands people in jail. Now, how and what kind of favors the Biden appointees at the DOL and the NLRB do for the Amazon Labor Union is anyone's guess. But that brings us to my fifth and biggest news story, again, connecting the dots. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So on Friday, I got a call from a reporter uh, who wanted to ask me some questions about what I thought about the Amazon and Starbucks campaigns. And I know you're expecting a different story, and I'm going to get to that. But Anyway, as I was on my 10th cup of coffee, which is about where I am right now, I probably gave her way too much data, all of which I've gotten from the media about Starbucks and Amazon, by the way, and some of which I've already touched on today. But I also gave her some historical data, and I have no idea if any of it was useful for her story. I might have actually overwhelmed her to the point where she won't use me as a source. But in any case, I'm going to share some of that data with you now because it's important and it gets me to my main point or the main story. So here's some facts for you. Number one, unions win a majority of the NLRB elections like the ones at Amazon and Starbucks. In fact, over the last 10 years, the average win rate for unions was 70.4% of National Labor Relations Board representational elections. In 2021, for example, unions won 77% of the NLRB elections held. In 2020, unions won 71%, and in 2019, which was before the pandemic, unions won 75% of the elections held. Number two, up until the year 2000, and this is really important, up until, up until the year 2000, the NLRB was conducting more than 3,000 representational elections per year. Let me repeat that. Up until the year 2000, the NLRB was conducting more than 3,000 representation elections per year. However, since 2000, that number's been falling to the point that in 2019, the, which was the last year before the pandemic, it was down two-thirds from what it was in 2000, only 954 elections. And I'm going to put this data under the audio portion of this episode. However, while the union win rate has stayed fairly steady over the last 20 years, around 70%, 
even if it were at 50%, half wins and half losses, as a union, if you're only conducting a third of the elections you were 20 years ago, you're not going to be able to have enough new members to keep up with the attrition rate of your seasoned members or older members. It's a pure numbers issue, and the unions know this. This is why, in fact, in 2005, the Great Schism in the union movement happened. And that's when seven unions broke away from the AFL-CIO to form the Change to Win Coalition. That was like the Teamsters, Unite Here, SEIU, UFCW, Laborers, and a couple others, Carpenters Union. So they broke away because they knew that the union movement was spending more on politics than they were on unionizing. And if today's union leaders were being honest, they'd admit it publicly. Instead, though, they've devoted billions of dollars into politics to get politicians elected in order to change the law to unionize workers without any kind of resistance. And that's through things like the PRO Act, and before that it was the Employee Free Choice Act, and the NLRB's efforts today to install backdoor card check. And this brings me to the big news story last week. On Thursday, the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, issued another memorandum, and this is like her 10th or 12th one in the last eight months, to the NLRB's regional directors. In this one, she stated that she plans to urge the board, the National Labor Relations Board, to find that employers holding mandatory meetings with employees to be considered unlawful. Well, that set the writers who write about workplace issues into a tither. It got the cheers from the pro-union echo chamber and gasps from the employer community. Now, if you're in HR or responsible for your company's communication strategies, don't panic. Be concerned, but don't panic. So I'm not going to read the whole memo to you because that would take all day. It's about three single-spaced pages. Um, and it's got footnotes and all that sort of stuff. However, there were two statements that Abruzzo made in her memo, and the first one got the most attention, so let's cover both. Here's what she said about outlawing, excuse me, outlawing captive audience meetings, so-called captive audience meetings. Quote, I will urge the board to correct that anomaly and hold that in two circumstances, employees will understand their presence and attention to employer speech concerning their exercise of the of Section 7 rights to be required when employees are, one, forced to convene on paid time, or two, cornered by management while performing their job duties, end quote. So first, what she's saying is that she believes that it would be an unlawful for an employer to hold a meeting where attendance is mandatory to talk about union-related issues. That's involving employee Section 7 rights. And secondly, she thinks that it would be unlawful for a supervisor or other manager to talk to employees out on the floor about union issues or while they're working. Now, I think most people know that Ms. Abruzzo is not coming up with this on her own. For the last 40 years or more, unions have bitched about employers educating their employees about the risks and ramifications of unions. And so they've tried to somehow corral employer speech about that. And there's been a few attempts. In fact, if unions had their way, no employer would be able to speak to their employees at all. Not voluntarily, not mandatory, not at all. Even though unions would have the right to make promises to workers, they could 
promise them more money, better benefits. They could try to buy their votes with pot. I told you this was the six degrees of separation, right? Now, I also said don't panic. Do not panic. First, let's talk process. Number one, and this is according to the attorneys at Proskauer, quote, a general counsel memorandum does not change the law in any respect. However, it does signal that the general counsel will be looking to bring a test case to the NLRB for a a ruling in the near future. Indeed, the general counsel stated that she will ask the board to consider its precedent in this area in appropriate cases and also that a brief will be submitted to the board shortly on the subject. At that point, the board will decide whether to overturn over 70 years of precedent with appeals likely to follow, end quote. Now, number two, according to the attorneys at Littler, quote, the general counsel's memorandum is significant because she makes the initial decision whether or not to issue complaints based on policies established by the National Labor Relations Board. By claiming authority to issue complaints against employer conduct that has been declared by the board to be legal for more than 70 years, the general counsel may be overstepping her authority, end quote. So let's assume for a moment that years down the road, in some test case somewhere, the NLRB has banned mandatory meetings, and it goes through the appeals process, and for whatever reason, the United States Supreme Court agrees with the NLRB that mandatory meetings are unlawful. Does that mean you can't talk to your employees about union issues? No. In fact, you can and should talk to your employees about union issues. Hell, you should be doing that right now, by the way. However, in this dark dystopian future that the unions in Miss Abruzzo want to foist upon you, even then you'll still be able to talk to your employees in voluntary meetings. And that's the key. You may not be able to hold mandatory meetings, but you can do so voluntarily. You can still have classes where you educate employees on the law, give them information that the union's not sharing with them, like the union's constitution, And you'll still be able to correct union misinformation as long as the employees are voluntarily listening. So how does that work? Well, as someone who's done literally thousands of classes with just guessing here, tens of thousands of employees over the last three decades, I can assure you that I really don't want to teach labor relations to people who don't want the information. So as a result, even when I've had employees assigned to classes and if they voice complaints about being there, I always tell them, look, if you don't want to be here, you're free to go back to work. And I can only speak to my, uh, about myself here, but it's very rare that employees get up and walk out. And over the course of three decades, I cannot think of a single instance where an employee who's walked out of a class has ever been disciplined. And in fact, on the contrary, I can recall a number of instances where some pro-union employee will stand up, make a scene, and then exit the room expecting others to follow. And although that doesn't happen very often when it has and the rest of the employees stay in the room, they usually apologize for their coworkers' behavior and it's when that happens, it's a much more productive class. So how does one do voluntary meetings? 
Well, I'm going to share some ideas with you, but bear in mind, this is not legal advice and you should actually talk to an attorney about it. And frankly, I was hoping to have an attorney on this episode to talk about this, but I was running out of time and is on short notice. So again, I'm not a lawyer, so get legal, legal advice, but this seems to be the easiest thing to do. If you're using a PowerPoint and the meeting is specific to union issues, have as the very first slide an explanation of the topics, but at the very top, state very clearly that, quote, this is a voluntary meeting. In this meeting, we will be discussing the National Labor Relations Act, which is a federal law that protects your rights in the workplace. If you do not want to attend, you are free to return to work. Now, interestingly, in one of her footnotes, Abruzzo does state that the rule, which is the ban on mandatory meetings, would, quote, not apply where employers require employees to attend meetings on subjects other than their exercise of Section 7 rights, e.g. a meeting for job training or safety instructions, end quote. So you see, even in her dark dystopian future, Abruzzo is stating that you can still hold mandatory meetings for job training or safety meetings or new hire orientation, things like that, as long as you're, it's not mandatory with regard to the employee's Section 7 rights. So if you're, say, doing a new hire orientation or a safety meeting, you can still do those mandatory or make those mandatory. And when you're finished with the main topics... Tell the attendees that for the next 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever, the rest of the meeting will be voluntary and tell them that you're going to be discussing preferably with a slide stating the topics that it is voluntary. And if they want to go back to work, they can. The other thing that's helpful about doing these types of meetings is do meetings with refreshments. People dig food now, and this is important. If you, if you do meetings now, safety meetings, new hire orientation, whatever, establish a past practice of serving food during these meetings before you ever have the need to talk about unions, because what you're doing is you're establishing a past practice. Become known for having great food during meetings, because again, people dig food. And by the way, back to Amazon for a minute. One of the things that, according to the union organizers, won people over to the union was the feeding of food by ethnicity. In other words, for example, the Africans were reportedly won over to the union by organizers serving African-style rice. So be sensitive to ethnicity. Serve, you know, ethnically appropriate food if you can and bear in mind certain religions for example do not eat pork so be aware of that but serve good food and the other thing you can do is you can make people want to come to the meetings make them attractive make them exciting doing swag giveaways for example or raffling off things at the end of meetings that's fun um, if you've got a large workforce if you do multiple raffle prizes for attendees after the meetings are over or have an employee pick the winning tickets, you know, make sure that it's, it's transparent. People know who's doing the picking. Um, those, you know, those are great morale boosters. It's not going to win everybody over. But again, if you start doing it now, before you ever have the need to talk about a union, you may be removing the need entirely. So if you have a, if you've got a safety meeting, raffling off a cooler or a Carhartt jacket, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to do things that are not mandatory. And in fact, if you start doing that stuff today, again, by energizing your employees 
you may never have to talk about union issues anyway. That's why I'm saying don't panic, at least not yet. Now, as I wrap up this episode, let me mention a couple other things about the direction Miss Abruzzo and her cohorts or comrades are taking things. And this, by the way, is part of the problem that the entire union movement has. For example, in her efforts to install backdoor card check, Abruzzo is referring back to a 1949 case called Joy Silk. In her latest memo about banning mandatory meetings, Abruzzo is also referring back to cases in, from 1947 and 1948, respectively. Unions and their allies are stuck in the 40s and 50s. They always want to go back to the time when unions represented a third of the U.S. workforce and they want to try to push unions like we are still in the 1950s. And what they refuse to grasp is that the world has changed. One of the major reasons that unions had such a stronghold in the United States during the 1950s and 60s is because after World War II, the United States was the only major producer of the world's goods that had not been bombed to oblivion. Once the world's industrial capacity came back online, unions began to lose market share, and that's referred to as global competition. And there's a major strike that took place, for example, in 1959 called the Great Steel Strike. 600,000 steel workers out on strike for six months, ordered back to work, and that began the downfall of the steel industry. Here in the United States, once Jimmy Carter, later on in the 1970s, deregulated the airlines, railroads, and trucking and telephone industries, domestic competition wiped out hundreds of thousands of unionized jobs. And by the way, I know some nitpickers out there are going to say the telephone industry wasn't deregulated under Carter because he was already out of office, and that happened in 1983. Well, for you nitpickers, Harold Green was the judge who broke up Ma Bell, and he was a Carter appointee. So although unions are clamoring for a return to the 40s and 50s and 60s, and they're really wasting a lot of resources doing it, when you see unions wasting their energies on trying to unionize companies like Uber and Lyft or even Amazon and Starbucks, in the sense of sustaining nutritional value, all they're doing is chasing empty carbohydrates. Because between self-driving cars and robots, those jobs are going to be automated and not in the too distant future. If they can invent robot bartenders, which they have, you don't think they can invent a robot to make coffee drinks? Please. And last I checked, unions do not collect union dues from robots. In any case, I need to do an episode on the actual decline of unions. Uh, one of these days I will, because a lot of what you're hearing out there in the media is BS. Um, Unions need to come up with a different business model because regardless how many Jennifer Bruzos or David Wiles or Marty Walsh's there are out there, and regardless how much they screw up the American workplace on behalf of their union comrades, the world has changed and will be changing even more. And a 19th or 20th century business model is not going to make it in the 21st century, at least not for long anyway. Well, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And as I mentioned early on, do me a favor, share this and other episodes of Labor Relations Radio with your colleagues. If someone shared this with you and you're not a subscriber, go to laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest on Substack. In any case, if you want to reach out, leave us a comment under the audio portion of this episode or reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. 
or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. Radio.